Romans 12 and Hebrews 12. So Matthew 5 is going to be our main place of starting, but we're going to be also going to Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and Hebrews chapter 12 as well. So, hey, let's pray. Once again, just good to be here this morning, Lord, and I pray over this next hour we would just stop and only focus on you. Let your spirit lead, guide, and teach. Help us to learn and grow in you in all ways and all things. Lord, I think of the baptism next Sunday for those that you have just kind of uh, put, the, put it on their heart. Um, I pray that they would be obedient to that calling and just be willing to take that public step in you in all ways and all things. Thank you for the opportunities we have on a day-in, day-out basis, just to see you work and to see your glory, Lord. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Continuing our study here through the book of Matthew, we're in the section on the Sermon on the Mount. This is our third week of being in it. And just remember, this sermon was given to Jesus' disciples. So this message is for us. This message is for the body of Christ here to know what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. This message would not apply to the world because the world needs to come know Christ first. Once they come know Christ, they will then see how God has called them to live. How are we supposed to live pure in an impure world? How are we supposed to be lights and witnesses in this dark world? And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to tell us. Now remember, the goal, the goal of this is pretty straightforward. Matthew 5, verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. No pressure there, guys. Just perfection. The point is that you can't be perfect on your own. That only comes through Christ and Christ alone. So when we go through this, when we see this, this is the goal. This is the standard that Christ has set for us. He says, this is how I want you to live. Now, we left off last week with this passage in verses 17 through 20 about how Christ talked about how he did not come to destroy the law. Those 600 plus rules and regulations in the law. He said, I did not come to destroy those, but to fulfill those. Now, he's going to use that as a stepping stone into what we're going to talk about today. For example, do not murder. That's what the law says. But he says, I don't want you just not to murder, obviously. He goes, but I want your heart. See, that's the focus here. As we get into this, he wants your heart. He does not just want outward obedience. He wants you inwardly to desire him, to want him, to grow in him. You know, in Matthew 22, when they came and asked Jesus, what is the greatest of all the law and the commandments? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He goes, that's what I want, is your heart. What did David say in Psalm 51? He says, you do not desire sacrifice and burnt offerings. He goes, what do you desire? You desire my heart. Now think back a few thousand years ago. That's almost sacrilegious. That's almost blasphemous for a Jew to say that, to say that you do not want offerings. Well, of course he wants offerings. That's what Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is about. David says, no, there's something deeper. He just doesn't want an animal dead and burnt. He wants my heart to be obedient to him. And it hasn't changed. He wants your heart. I believe it was Spurgeon that says a broken clock tells the right time twice a day. Here on Sunday mornings, we come. We look good. We sound good. We run into somebody else at uh, the store. We look good. We sound good. What's our heart like, though? And we have to get into that. See, I can make my boys at home be obedient. I can make my kids follow me. I'm still bigger than them. I'm still stronger than them. I'm still louder than them. I can intimidate them into obedience. There's going to come a time and day where I'm not bigger than them, I'm not stronger than them, and I'm not going to be able to intimidate them. I want them to obey what is right because in their heart they know it's right, not out of fear, not out of intimidation. God could make us obey him. But he says, I want you to willfully choose in your heart to do what's right. Not just outward looking, but inward looking. I want your heart. 
What's so difficult about this? Well, I've got a couple slides here I'm going to show you of just some passages. Alan, if you could put that first one up there. Here's the problem with our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Stop right there. That is how your loving Heavenly Father describes you. He says you're wicked. He says you're deceitful. And that's the truth. He knows us. This is what we are as human beings in the core. We are deceitful. We are wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. This is what mankind is like. Watch the evening news. You will see deceitfully wicked, evil people. Go to work. You'll see deceitfully evil, wicked people. Go home. You'll see them. Come to church. You'll see them. We're all over the place. Ecclesiastes says this, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. That pretty much so describes us. We're now evil, deceitful, and mad. Last one, Proverbs 27, As in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. See, that's the point. Your heart shows what's really important to you. Your heart shows what you think about your marriage, what you think about Christ, what you think about God's Word, what you think about your life. Who's in charge? That's what your heart shows. You know, at that evangelism training class we did a couple weeks ago, they had these great pictures of the circles. If you guys were there, you know what I'm talking about. And who sits on the throne of your life? Who's in charge of you? Are you putting Christ on the throne to let him lead, guide, and direct you? Or you are self on the throne with Christ sitting at your feet? See, my heart reveals who I am. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach us here in Matthew 5. He goes, I don't want you just to obey. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Okay, I won't. He goes, I want in your heart to be obedient to me and what's right. And that's what he's going to get into this morning. So with that being said, let's jump into this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a call shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly. By your own the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. As surely I say to you, by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, we got verse 21 down, I hope, right? You shall not murder. Okay, I can check that one off. Haven't done it, won't do it. Jesus says, that's what's been said of old, verse 22, but I say to you. Jesus goes, I'm going to go one step deeper. So you got the no murder part down, good. Let's go one step deeper than that. In your heart, I don't want you to have anger towards anybody. Wow. That's tough. Anger. I may not be guilty of murder, but am I guilty of anger in my heart? Now, you've got to remember, anger in and of itself is not a sin. It's what you do while you're angry that determines whether it's a sin or not. You're going to get angry. You're going to. You're going to get angry about people as you drive home. You're going to get angry with people you live with. You're going to get angry with people at church. You're going to get angry with coworkers. It is inevitable. You're going to get angry with your kids, with your parents. You're going to get angry. What determines whether or not anger is a sin or not is how you respond to it and what you choose to do with that. It's going to happen. 
I love Dawn more than anybody else in this world. I get angry with Dawn more than anybody else in this world. Because we live together 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Anybody that's been married for longer than 24 hours is going to deal with anger. It's just a fact. I did a wedding years ago, and the dad came up to me and goes, What's your guarantee? I said, I'll give a 24-hour guarantee. That's what I'll do. I'll give 24 hours. Because I know for 24 hours, we can get through it. Anger is tough. So what are you going to do when you're angry? Because anger in and of itself is not a sin. It's what you do while you're angry that determines whether it's a sin. Let's see what we're going to do. I had you go to Ephesians 4. Let's take a look at that. Ephesians 4. Look at verse 26 of Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. That's exactly what we just said. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. So be angry and do not sin. So now you're upset. Someone has done something that has hurt you, that has wronged you, that has offended you, that has bothered you. What are you going to do about it? Well, first thing you're going to do is not sin. Number two, you're not going to let the sun go down on your wrath. You're not going to let it have a power over you. You're not going to give, verse 27, a place to the devil. Because this is what happens. Anger, when it is not taken care of, will get a foothold in your life. And that anger will go from righteous anger to sinful anger very quickly. Now, what does it look like for anger to go from a righteous anger to a sinful anger? I can't say what it looks like for you, but I know in my heart when it clicks. I know when I go from I'm angry and I'm upset and that's okay, to now I'm angry and upset and I'm sinning. I know when it happens. Holy Spirit stops right there and he says, James, flashing red lights, stop. Now, the problem is we go from righteous anger to sinful anger, and then you know what we choose to do? We choose to stay there. And then we give Satan a foothold. And all of a sudden, this believer that was walking in joy and love and peace is now walking in anger. And the joy of their life is completely gone. Bitterness controls them. Anger controls them. And it affects everybody. It's a disease that just spreads through the entire house and through the body of Christ. That's how powerful anger is. And then what does anger do as it continues to affect us? It affects our words. You know, stay here in Ephesians 4, but think back to what we just read in Matthew chapter 5. It affects our words. That's why I said if you say raka, some of your translations say empty-headed. One translation says idiot. Have you ever run into somebody like that? Every single person they run into they think is an idiot. They work with them. They live with them. People drive near them. Everybody is. Everybody they talk to is just wrong. They're just wrong and people are dumb and all this other type of stuff. What are you seeing? You're seeing a window into their heart. You're seeing what is going on inside of their heart. And in that heart, they have allowed anger to become bitterness and to fester. And then it says one step further, everybody's a fool. That word literally means to like curse them. Everybody's wrong. Everybody is completely, utterly wrong. And then all of a sudden, their words reveal what's really going on in their heart. See, and look in Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Real quick, analyze the words coming out of your mouth. Are they edifying? Are they encouraging? Or are they corrupt? Jump ahead to verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. Look at your life. Look at your words. Is wrath, anger, evil speaking, bitterness, is that controlling you? If that's controlling you, you're not letting the Holy Spirit control you. Verse 32. How are we supposed to respond? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. That's how we're supposed to respond. Now, at this time, there's usually somebody that stops and says, yeah, but. 
You don't know what they've done to me. You don't know what they've said to me. You don't know how they treated me. If you were in my position, this is what you would do. I have somebody say that to me a lot. If you were in my position, this is what you would do. My response is, I hope I would do what Christ would do. Because what would Christ do? Look at the end of verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. See, Christ hung from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. See, here's the thing. We have sinful anger. That's in the Bible. We know that. We have a righteous anger. That's in the Bible. We have created a third term that's not biblical. I call it justifiable anger. I am justified in how I feel because I feel like I've been so wronged and hurt, I'm allowed to act this way. I am justified in harboring this bitterness because this person has so hurt me and so wronged me. That's not in the Bible. That's not. If you are walking in that justifiable anger, you are walking in sin. Because Christ set the example of, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of us to lead us on that same path of forgiveness. Because if to choose to walk in that bitterness, it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your joy. It's going to destroy the people around you. Somebody one time uh, told me a little saying that I've never forgotten. Bitterness is like you taking poison but hoping the other person dies. And that's what happens. Your whole life now thinks about them and anger and frustration. I had a friend tell me one time that he struggles with what he calls anger fantasies. You know when that person has wronged you and hurt you, and then you walk into the house, and this is what I'm going to say, and this is what I'm going to do, and I'm sure going to tell them what's up. And it feels good, doesn't it? That righteous anger feels good for a while. But then righteous anger becomes sinful anger very quick, and we've gone from being right to now being wrong. Okay, we're wrong. Now what do we do? Well, what's it say to do in Matthew 5? If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly. God says this is so important for you to have peace with others that as you come to bring your spiritual gift to God, God says actually put it down. I'd rather have you go make peace. I'd rather have you go make peace with your brother or sister. Think about that. The Lord is saying, paraphrased here, the Lord is saying, hey, put me off to the side for a second. Because you need to go make peace with this person. That's how important that is. Do it quickly, verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly. Reconcile with them. The word reconcile means to exchange, to renew a friendship. To reconcile means you go back and you fix it. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Leave your gift, go to that person, reconcile. That is so important. Now, the problem is we hear this and we agree. And we say things like this. That's right. I need to make peace with them. You know, the next time I see him, I'll try to talk to him. No. Leave the gift. Go now. I will. I will. This is a pretty, pretty busy week. I'll, I'll, I'll try to get to that. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this is so important. Stop what you're doing, whatever you're doing, and go make peace. That's hard to do. Dawn and I will be married 20 years this year. And I have tried so hard to hold a grudge and carry a grudge. And I can't. I want to. I, I, we have these sometimes disagreements, and I can remember very early in our marriage, we'd have these disagreements and fights, and I'd be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stand my ground on this one. I'm always the one to come back and say, I'm sorry. I'm not doing that anymore. So I would go. I can go about an hour. That's about the longest I can go. And then I have to contact her and say, I'm sorry. 
If you look at most of my texts to Dawn, it's, I'm sorry. That's the most of the only thing I tell her all day. I can't do it. I so bad want to, and I can't. Now, Dawn's got it down as an art form. For 20 years, she hasn't said I'm sorry about anything. She just keeps on going. She's not affected by anything. But I try. I want to. I can't. The Holy Spirit says, you can't do this. You can't hold on to this. And then what happens for me as a pastor, I try to hold on to it. Then one of you contacts me, and you have like the identical situation. Now, James, what do you think I should do? I think you should forgive him. I think you should go make peace. And the Holy Spirit's saying, yeah, what about you? What about you? Agree with your adversary quickly. Leave your gift at the altar and go do it. What does that look like, though, practically? Well, let's go to Romans 12. Romans 12, please. It's one thing to say that. What does it actually look like to do? Romans 12. Starting in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. No one evil for evil. That's a pretty straightforward statement. No one. There's no justifiable anger, justifiable bitterness, justifiable grudges, none. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 18 is key. As much as depends on you, live at peace with people. As much as depends on you. You may not be able to live at peace with them. I have run into people that I want to have peace with, but they don't want to have peace with me. So what do I do? I try to build a bridge of peace with them. If they don't want it, I say, okay, I did my part. I'm still open. I still love them. I still forgive them. But I did my part. Now, be careful with that. Because I've seen people say, well, I tried. They're lost. Moving on. And it's almost like this. Ha, ha, I won. No. No one wins in bitterness and anger. No one. As much as depends on you, live at peace with all people. Beloved, verse 19, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. A lot of times we feel like I have to avenge. I can't let that person get away with it. I can't let them get away with what they said. I can't let them get away with what they did. Now, the Lord may lead you to take a stand. If he tells you to take a stand, take a stand. But ultimately, the Lord says, James, let me take care of it. Well, Lord, I don't think you're moving quick enough. And I don't think your punishment is severe enough. So therefore, I must take vengeance in my hands because you're not doing a good enough job. It's amazing. We always want vengeance when we're the one wronged. But if it doesn't involve us, we don't want vengeance. We want mercy. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Love him. What does this look like? What does this look like practically? So you have wronged somebody. First thing you do is pray. You pray, Lord, prepare my heart to deal with them. It's not a prepare the argument, prepare my debate points. Lord, help me win this. Lord, I want to have a heart like you. I want to be able to forgive when I am wronged. I want to be able to say I'm sorry when I have wronged somebody else. So often I see apologies that are loaded. Well, I'm sorry for what I did to you, but... If you wouldn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, that's not an apology. An apology is, I'm sorry for what I did. I'm wrong. You know, we've said many times out here, the most powerful words in the English language is, I'm sorry, I love you, please forgive me. The eight most powerful words, I'm sorry, I love you, please forgive me. If they choose not to, there's nothing you can do about that. But you've done what's right, so you pray to have your heart ready. Next, you offer to talk. Offer to talk for peace. Not an argument. 
Dawn tells me this a lot, that if we're not agreeing on something, I'll come to her and say, I want peace. So we'll start talking. Dawn says about five minutes in the conversation, uh, you don't want peace. You just want to continue the conversation and make your points. And she's right. So often my peace is a disguise for, I still want to prove to you that I'm right. Do you want peace or do you want to win the argument? What happens if they won't talk? Write a letter, send a text, send an email. Well, they won't read it. You're still clear. You've done what you can. If they don't want to live at peace with you, you can't make them. But you have a responsibility to represent Christ in all that you do and all that you say. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, we live in a world, you work, you live at home, you come to a church where there's evil all over the place. Are you going to go down to that level, or are you going to realize you have a different moral standard in how you live and how you act, and you're going to overcome evil with good? Right now in the Irvin household, our two youngest, Tyrus and Layden, Layden is six, just turned six, Tyrus will turn four here in just a couple months. They are at each other all the time. And so they'll both come up, and they'll both be in tears. What happened? He pushed me. Okay, well then why is he crying? Because I pushed him back. Instead of overcoming evil with good, we're overcoming evil with evil. And what happens is they both are crying. Same thing happens in the world. Now, my kids are six and three. And they're still trying to overcome evil with evil. I've run into people that are 53 and 56. And they're still trying to overcome evil with evil. It doesn't work. We're called to a different standard. This is not entrench yourself in and win. This is, I forgive you. Because Christ forgave me. That's what it is. Do we want that? What happens if we don't? Last passage on this before we move on. Hebrews 12, please. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people. Pursue peace with all people. All. Repay no one evil for evil. Pursue peace with all people. And holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Ask yourself, has your righteous anger turned into sinful anger, which has turned into justifiable anger, to now there's a plant, a root of bitterness in your life? Man, in the name of Jesus, you want that thing ripped out. That's just going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your witness. It's going to destroy your walk. And look what it says right here in verse 15. Many become defiled. What happens, it does not just affect you. It affects everybody. It affects who you work with, who you live with. It affects your family. It affects your kids. It affects everybody. That's what bitterness does. It just destroys. But we're so prideful in trying to prove that we're right, we don't realize how wrong we actually are. And that's why Jesus here in verses 21 through 26 says, Listen, this is going to kill you. Love, forgive, let it go, and don't in your heart harbor that anger. Jump back now to Matthew 5. We go from the issue of anger in the heart to now the issue of lust in the heart. Verse 27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You should not commit adultery. See, once again, okay, we're good, right? I haven't killed anybody, haven't committed adultery, I'm doing okay. Well, it's not just not killing somebody, it's in your heart 
not having that anger towards them. Now in verse 27, it's not actually going out and committing the act of adultery. It's in your heart. Verse 28, but I say to you that whoever looks in a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye calls you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. This is a touchy subject, right? We don't like to talk about this stuff. This makes it awkward. This isn't nice. This isn't fun. Anytime we start getting the idea of just lusting in our heart. You know, one of the things I say out here is if I ever talk to a guy and he tells me he doesn't struggle with this, it either means he's dead or he's lying. So, it's a battle. It is a battle in this world we live in. We live in a world of impurity. Wherever you go, there's things that you can find online that you should never look at ever. There's things you can find on TV you should never look at ever. This stuff is beamed right into our households, and there's the temptation to look, to click, to watch, and it will destroy you, and it will destroy your family, it will destroy everything. If you're married, it will hurt your marriage. If you're not married, it will hurt your future spouse. It will destroy you. But it's become so normal, so acceptable. Look at what Jesus is saying right here. He says, if that's in your heart... If that is in your heart, oh, man, the danger of it. But once again, we live in a society where it's really really not that big a deal. I mean, I know it's wrong. Do we realize how wrong that is and how dangerous that is? Jesus says, so dangerous, verse 29, pluck out your eye. Cut off your hands. That's a pretty powerful statement, right? Jesus is saying that you should hate sin so much that you'd be willing to pluck out your eyes, cut off your hand. Now, does he mean that literally? Well, no, because here's the problem. You take out my eyes, so therefore I can never look, never lust. In my nearly 40 years of life, there's been enough images stored up. You take away my hands, so therefore I can never hurt somebody, punch anything, be angry. I'm still going to come at you with stumps because that's my evil heart. The sin is there. It's not about cutting off body parts. It's about saying, in your heart, are you so willing to hate sin that you would do that? But he's not actually asking you to do it. Listen to this. The trouble with the literal interpretation is that it does not go far enough. Even if you did cut off your hand or gouge out your eye, you could still sin with your other hand or eye. When all those are gone, you could especially sin with your mind. Here's a quote. Mutilation will not serve the purpose. It may prevent the outward act but it will not extinguish desire. So you can take away the outward act, the outward sin, the outward temptation, but Jesus still says, where's your heart? I want your heart. So fine, you go live in the middle of the desert so you never see another person again. I will never struggle with lust again. You've seen enough that it will come back in your mind. Okay, so we take everything away, right? We put the internet filters on. We take away the temptations. We move everything out. So therefore, there's not even an opportunity. Yeah, but where's your heart? See, that's what he wants. He wants the heart. Once again, I go back to the points I said at the beginning of the message. I can make my kids obey me. But I want them in their heart to obey me. Back to Tyrus and Layden. I told you they're the rough ones right now. Tyrus is in this phase, and I don't know what's going on. He likes to throw toys. And Layden's always the one that gets hit. Always the one that gets hit. So Layden will come up the stairs. He's in tears, hand over a certain part of the body. What's wrong? Tyrus threw something at me. Now, Tyrus is going to grow up to be the worst 
robber thief in the world. Because he follows about 30 seconds behind, quietly, slowly, while still holding the weapon of choice in his hand. He's not smart enough to hide the toy that he threw at him. So obviously he throws it, hits Layden, realizes he's wrong, collects the weapon, and then brings it to me. I don't get it. I need to teach him how to sin better because he's not doing a good job. So he comes up, and it's like, what happened? Tyrus threw a toy at me. Tyrus, did you throw a toy at him? Yeah. What'd you throw at him? Well, fill in the blank. I threw a Nerf gun at him. The Nerf gun you're holding in your hand? Yeah. Now, listen, I could go down to our basement and take away every toy so they have nothing to throw at each other in any way whatsoever. But I can't fix the heart. I want Tyrus in his heart to realize you don't get anywhere at life by throwing things at people. It just doesn't work. I want Tyrus and Layden to realize in their heart it doesn't do any good to push each other if someone pushes you. I want all my kids, I want everybody to grow up learning it doesn't do any good to repay evil for evil. So I can take away everything. So therefore, you have no toys to throw. You have no hands to push with. But in your heart, you can still harbor anger. In your heart, you can still harbor lust. This is the point that Jesus is trying to say. He goes, I want you. It goes back to what we said there in Matthew 22 at the beginning. What is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's what he wants. It goes back to what we said at the beginning with David. David said, you don't want burnt offerings and dead animals. You want my heart. Because when God has our heart, then we'll obey in obedience and love in the Spirit. Not because we have to, but because we choose to because it's the right thing to do. So now the question comes up, where's your heart? Now, concerning this subject here of, of lust, that's a big battle. And I just want to share a few scriptures with you real quick. Alan, can you put that up there? When it comes to this battle, I just want to share with you how the Lord says through the Bible to take care of this. First one, Job 31.1, make a covenant. It says in Job 31.1 that Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look at the young maidens. Now think about that. Job was written maybe three, 4,000 years ago. And he said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Covenant is a very strong word. It means more than just trying to. It means more than just, I, I agree to it. It's a deep promise that I promise I'm not going to look at the young maidens. Now think about this. What were the young maidens wearing three, 4,000 years ago? Were they not covered from head to toe? What would Job think walking through the mall in the middle of summer? But he made a covenant with his eyes saying, I'm not going to let my eyes wander to the young women. First thing you have to do is you have to stop and ask yourself, do you want to quit? Do you want to stop? Because if you don't want to, nothing else matters. Well, I know I should. I know I shouldn't. I probably should stop. When you reach a point in your heart where you look at this and say, I hate this sin so much for what it does to me, to my wife, to my husband, to my kids, to my family, to my future spouse, I'm, I'm disgusted by it like you are, Lord. Now you're ready to move forward. Now you're ready to make a covenant. So now you make the promise. I don't want to. What do you do next? Psalm 119, 9 through 11. God's word says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against God. How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? Psalm 119. You realize the power of God's word. God's word gets in there. It's a surgical tool. It cuts. It takes out the sin. And you stop and you say, instead of focusing on that, I'm going to focus on scriptures. I'm going to focus on what's pure. I'm going to focus on what's right. Next one then. 1 Timothy 5, 2. Look at women in purity. 1 Timothy 5.2 basically says this. An older woman, look at her as if you look at your mother. A younger woman, look as if you look at your sister. They're no longer objects of the flesh. They are future sisters in Christ or sisters in Christ now. 
And that's how you're supposed to treat it. That's how you're supposed to do it. Next one, 2 Corinthians 10.5. The mind will wander. It will wander. Take every thought captive, it says there. When the mind starts to go down to a place it shouldn't go. And not just about lust, about anger, about greed, about pride, about envy, about jealousy. Anytime the mind goes to that spot where it shouldn't go, take that thought captive. Okay, now you have that thought captive. What do you do? It's kind of like the dog that actually catches the car. What do I do? Philippians 4.8, dwell on what is good. I take that thought captive. I don't want to think on that. I start thinking on what is good. I go back to those scriptures that have been memorized that the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance. I go back to those praise and worship. I go back and I think of something that is good. That word for dwell on what is good. Some of your translations say meditate or think. It's actually an accounting term. It means to keep going over the numbers again and again and again. It's not just my mind wants to sin. Oh, take that thought captive. And now I think of sunshine and daisies. Amen. Move on. I dwell on what is good. I think on what is good. I meditate on what is good. I cover my house, my room, whatever with scriptures. I keep praise and worship in the car. I'm at work and I have my Bible with me. Wherever those temptations are, I'm going to make sure that I have tools around there to think about what is good. And then lastly, James 5.16, be accountable. James 5.16 says, confess your trespasses to one another. Maybe you need to go up to a brother or sister in the Lord, and let me stress this, gals go to gals, guys go to guys, and say, I need help with this area. I'm going to confess to you I struggle with this. Will you help me be accountable? Over the years, I've had so many guys come up to me, especially in the area of lust, and say, I want to be held accountable. And I've had guys come up, and they set up their computers to have a filter, and they email me what they look at every week, so that way there's accountability to say, make sure they're not looking at anything they shouldn't. And we got this little saying that we use where we just kind of say, how are your eyes? How are your eyes? Are your eyes staying focused on the Lord and what's good? It's accountability. Now, you've got to remember with accountability. Accountability can't make anybody live pure. Accountability is just a reminder to look to Jesus. Ultimately, this is your personal walk with the Lord, and you have to stop and say, Lord, I want this. It goes back to the first point. I make a covenant with you that I don't want to go down this path. And it's not just lust. It may be any sin you struggle with, anything, the pride, the envy, the jealousy, the anger, the bitterness. I don't know what it is. But you stop and you say, Lord, I want to give you my heart because that's where the battle's at. We can make ourselves be outwardly obedient. But what's going on inside? What I want to finish with is this. We've made reference to this passage a couple of times. Let's just go read it real quick. Can you go with me to Matthew 22? Matthew 22. Go to Matthew 22, verse 34. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Of the 600 plus commandments in the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what is the most important thing? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Pretty straightforward. Simple question to end with. Are you loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm not saying that to pick on you. I'm not. I'm saying that to honestly ask yourself, are you? We say this phrase out here a lot. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's not about these four walls. It's about the gospel going out. 
If all my time and energy of my day is spent in sin, how am I ever going to care about seeing souls get saved? I really want to give God the glory. You know, the Bible says we were created for his glory. So, Lord, I want to give you the glory. How can I give you the glory? By living pure in you through your power and your might, by being a light and a witness for you. That's what I want. How does that happen? By giving you my heart. Because when I give you my heart, my heart will be aligned with your heart and motives. And all of a sudden I realize it's not about, oh, I've been wronged. I need to avenge myself. It's not about making James happy. It's about seeing the gospel go out. It's not about pleasing me. It's about putting God on the throne of my life. Because my heart is now aligned with his heart. But if I hold my heart back, I'll never really fully understand what it means to be crazy in love with Christ. And to really see what it looks like in a life, in a marriage, in a witness. And guys, I just want you to love the Lord with all your heart. And when that happens, you'll really start to see, man, this is what it is. This is what it looks like. So with that being said, as we get ready to close up here with the the final song, if anybody has anything they want to pray about, I'll be standing in the back. Come back. I kind of call it a reverse altar call. Instead of coming up, come back. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe you've never given your heart fully over to the Lord. Let's talk about what that means in salvation, being born again. Maybe you've given your heart over to the Lord, but now there's so much junk that's come up. Let's pray for strength and rededicating. Maybe there's just an issue that's just coming back again and again. Hey, let's pray about it. If I'm back there praying with somebody, Marv will close you out with the word of prayer. And I also just want to encourage you with this too. A neat opportunity. Next Sunday, we're having a baptism service here at the 10 o'clock service. We'll have a regular church service, etc. But we're going to end with baptism. Maybe this is the week where you stop and you say, Lord, I've given you my heart, and I want to publicly show the world that I've given you my heart. If the Lord has laid it on your heart about the baptism, I, I highly encourage you to do it. I'm not going to push you. I can't make you, but I'm just telling you, it's a great step in your walk with the Lord. It's not salvation, but it's a great public way to say, Lord, I'm serving you. I'm loving you. Maybe you were baptized as a baby. Should you be baptized as an adult? Maybe you were baptized years ago and you've fallen away. Should I be re-baptized again? If you have questions like that, come ask us. But if you're interested, we'd love to encourage you to do it. It's not only a blessing to you. It's a blessing to the body of Christ to see people take that stand publicly and say, I want to serve the Lord and all that I do and say. And then you can stick around next Sunday afterwards for some fellowship, too, with the potluck. It's a lot of fun. So, Mark, you can come forward here.